0: So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue-white-green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Freelance writing is a pipe dream for many burnt-out staff reporters, hobby writers and anyone who wants to achieve work-life balance on their own terms. Alexandra Kane, or Ali as most of her clients and peers call her, has spent 20 years building and sustaining a successful freelance business writing career. Ali wanted to be a business journalist ever since her dad used to bring home the Australian Financial Review when she was little. She couldn't understand a word of it, but was still try to decipher what was written. So it's her privilege to now write for the AFR, as well as a huge number of other publications in Australia and overseas, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Forge, and she also edits the ASX magazine listed at ASX. An always in-demand freelancer, Ali also writes for many of Australia's and the world's biggest and some of the smallest businesses, regularly producing newsletter articles, blog posts, white papers, speeches and more recently, podcasts for her clients. And she's worked with me for over a decade now, leading hard-hitting media interview role plays for my clients in communications training workshops. For Ali, it's all about getting to the crux of why business and money matter and helping people to understand this world. And of course, she works and lives at home in sunny D.Y., which today would be a cracker of a day, I imagine. Ali, welcome. Thank you very much, Amber. So it sounds like you did achieve your childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up. You, you wanted to be a business writer and here you are. Were there any kind of distractions along the way?
1: Uh, yes. I When I went to university, I originally wanted to do a law degree, uh, but I, I only wanted to go to Sydney University. And the reason why is because my Great Auntie Ida was the first doctor of science, female doctor of science at Sydney Uni, and my dad went to Sydney, and we sort of see it as the family university. But I didn't get into law at Sydney. So I started doing an arts degree there, which I felt wasn't going to take me anywhere. And so in my second year, I switched to economics, which was the best decision that I ever made. So I finished my economics degree. A couple of years later, I went and did a master of communications. And that's how you end up being a finance journalist. So it was a roundabout way to get there. But it was it's been a fantastic life.
0: And you did start off originally um, being working for Fairfax, right? So being a staff reporter and doing no. the day-to-day?
1: No, I started off in investor relations and that sort of is what led me to thinking that I could set up by myself. So I started in investor relations. I worked in investor relations and I started in investor relations division for a PR company. And when I did that, I was really young. I was sort of in my mid-twenties. I thought oh, you know, if I can start a business for someone else, I can probably do this for myself. So that's when I went out on my own and I had connections at the financial review and started writing for them as a freelancer
0: straight away. That's amazing. because A lot of people, even myself included, sort of had to sort of earn their stripes in that newspaper or, you know, magazine or whatever, whatever format you wanted world well before you could go out as a freelancer. But you sort of circumnavigated that in a way.
1: Yeah, I did. It's not that unusual. There's a lot of people working in the media that, you know, don't come via a journalism degree, although less so now. But yeah, it was a definitely a circuitous way to get where I wanted to go. But I always loved writing. And I guess you know, perhaps early on I suffered from imposter syndrome and thought I would never be a good enough writer. But it's all about pen miles. The more you write, the better you get. And I did a, a calculation earlier this year, and
0: I've written something like ten million words. Wow! You don't you done more than your ten thousand hours, as, as Malcolm Gladwell used to say. You needed to be an expert. You've definitely done that and more. Yeah, I have. <laughs> So what made you want to give up that steady income to actually go out on your own and become a freelancer? Do you remember the moment you decided and wasn't exactly what you thought it would be like?
1: I absolutely remember the moment I decided I had taken some time off work to think through what I wanted. And I just felt deep in my soul that going out by myself was exactly the right thing to do. You know, instinctually when you've made the right decision. So when I started out, um, I was so young, I had no obligations. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into and how risky it could be, which is, I guess, the best time to start that sort of a job. When I started out, I would just take any job that came through my door because I was petrified of not being a success. But I've since learned that you need to be more judicious about the work that you take on and really sort of stay in your lane and, and establish yourself as a specialist in a certain area. But when I first started, I was just, you know, uh, just very keen to make a success of it.
0: So some of the early mistakes that you made as a freelancer, could you share what they could be? And I imagine I think of things like not charging enough for your time because you just want people to say yes and, and, you know, get the work or maybe not doing enough of that pipeline work to make sure that you have cash flow, which is obviously king when you're a freelancer or even not even choosing the right type of clients. So there's some sort of examples of some of the, the rookie mistakes that you, you made along the way.
1: I think making... Not promises I can't keep, but promises that are hard to keep. I didn't realise early on that you do have some sort of negotiation power when it comes to things like setting your rate and setting your deadlines. Clients always want things yesterday, but you know, yesterday is very difficult to produce a story by. So it's quite reasonable to say to a client, look, I can't do it for Friday, but I can do it for Monday. And mostly they will be, you know, approachable and and prepared to, to negotiate on that basis. So don't be afraid to know what you're worth and to expect clients to be reasonable. If clients aren't going to be reasonable with you, it's probably best to look for another client.
0: I think that goes for most businesses even the sorts of work that I do you know having a good client value match is is really important to be able to have a harmonious and successful working relationship so I think that would be good advice for lots of people in lots of different industries
1: Yeah absolutely and you know one of the things that people think is that freelancing is difficult life and it's not not solid but I've found that it's actually a great protection during downturns because I might have 20 or so clients. And even if some of them go away during a downturn, they're not all going to go away. But if you have one job and you lose your job, well, that's your entire income. So in some ways, it's quite good risk management to be a freelancer with a lot of clients.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's advice as well. So how do you approach freelance writing as a business development sort of process so that you can plan your income and obviously pay those mortgages that I'm sure that you now have and balance your energy levels so that you don't end up working seven days a week for months on end. And then suddenly it's that feast and famine thing where you actually have nothing coming in and you, you don't know where that next kind of freelance gig is going to come from.
1: There's a couple of aspects to this. So the first thing is that you do always need to be doing new business. And I think that I just have it set in my brain to constantly be doing new business. And for me, what that means is, you know, if I see a good story idea for a client, I'll ring them up and suggest it. I'll proactively pitch story ideas to editors on an ongoing basis. Or if I file a lot of stories for a client. I'll immediately send through some more story ideas. Now, the other aspect of this in terms of balancing your work life is to try and have a number of clients. It's really difficult if you've got one client that's 80% of your work and 80% of your revenue, and then, you know, five to 10 other clients that make up the bulk of it. If you can try and get five, 10, 20 clients and have them more sort of equal in terms of their workload, then that's much better in terms of, of managing your workload too. These days, I now outsource some of my writing to other writers that I've worked with over the years. That's also a great way to make sure that I don't work on weekends. Yeah, absolutely. I do, <laughs> I do
0: know you. I do have I do have it on on good information that you do sometimes work on the weekends. And I guess that's that's part of it. But if you enjoy what you do and you know, maybe you can get some time back during the week to, to go for that surf or go for a walk or something if you've worked on a weekend as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's that flexibility. And when you start working for yourself, you need to get used to the idea of having that flexibility that if you want to go and do a yoga class at four o'clock, come back and do another couple of hours work, go for your life.
0: Yeah, you don't, you don't have that boss kind of saying you need to be on that nine to five clock, which I guess no. is why people love the idea of, of freelancing and, and writing for, for ranges of clients that don't necessarily need to know when they do the work as long as they get it done by the deadline.
1: That's right. But you do have to take a very business-like approach to it. I I work business hours. I get up, I put on makeup, I put on good clothes. And so that is a psychological trick to tell me that I'm working. It's You can't operate a freelance business and think that you can do it part-time. You have to operate it like any sort of business.
0: Absolutely. So I'm wondering, this is kind of getting into money because, you know, you are a business journalist and you ask people when you interview them all the time about their revenue and their money, what's the best year of income you've ever had and would that mean for you to achieve that? You'd have sort of fewer higher paying clients, but you're servicing a lot or lots of smaller jobs or a mixture of, of everything. I mean, how did you achieve the best year you ever have in the 20 years you've been a freelancer working for yourself?
1: My best year was probably 2005, 2006. I love how you just know well, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm really well across my numbers, as you can imagine. And that year, what I had in that year was a number of really big projects. So, you know, a major bank would call up and want 20 stories in a week's time. So that really worked to support my income during that time. But during that time, I was also small business editor on a freelance basis for the for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and that was also regular income. So I really worked so hard that year. I honestly think I did work every single weekend. And I remember getting to the end of a really big project that year and thinking, I've given myself brain damage. I've worked oh. too
0: hard. <laughs> Talk about burning out. Absolutely. So how do you promote yourself, given that I imagine some of your clients would want to keep your writing services all to themselves and I guess not have their competitors use you? How do you balance that out?
1: Well, I what I do is I, I do sign confidentiality and sort of non-compete agreements with certain clients, Small small clients. Um, if I've got a client that is in a particular industry sector that's small, I will typically agree not to work for their competitors. And, or if I do, I will disclose it and, and keep those lines of communications open. But when it comes to things like working for the big banks, then um, as long as I'm not, you know, working for the loans department at Westpac and working for the loans department at Commonwealth Bank at the same time, they don't mind
0: that. And they're probably expected, I guess, in a way, because you don't work for them exclusively
1: that's exactly right and and that's the the nature of the beast i'm not I'm not exclusive for them. And if they do want me exclusively, you know there's a fee involved, obviously.
0: Obviously, absolutely. Um, look, it is hard being a freelancer. You've obviously made um, a successful livelihood for yourself for the past two decades, but I, I do think a lot of the gig economy discussions at the moment are looking at the way in which we can better support, you know, freelancers and casual staff Do you think the government has a role to play, to kind of play catch up? Because I guess if you're in a, you know, if you're in a full-time job, even if it's not as well paid, you might have super, you might have health cover, you might have leave provisions if you get sick or you have to take time out for caring responsibilities. Is there a role that government can play to make freelancing not just more attractive, but actually more fair for people who are contributing to the economy? I mean, you pay taxes, you do other things as well. So what's your view on that?
1: Yeah, I I think that, you know, lower taxes would always be welcome. And I do think that the government needs to appreciate that, you know, freelancers are running a business. Last year in Victoria, the government provided, you know, wage support and incentives for businesses except for freelancers. And that really jarred me because of sole traders, I should say. That really jarred me because why shouldn't sole traders get the same support as other businesses? I think it's really important for the government to see the contribution that we make. We often talk about the contribution that small businesses make to the economy. But if you broke that into sole traders, it would be fascinating to see how many businesses are sole traders and the contribution that we make to GDP.
0: There's a great story idea for you there, Ali. You can pitch that, True. Pitch that one in. True. Yeah, no, Thanks. it's interesting. And people thought, of course, this time around in Australia, during our, our current lockdowns, there is some provisions for sole traders. So maybe maybe there was a bit of lobbying to kind of, overcorrect that in a way or at least catch up when it comes to sort of the pandemic and how our contribution but also like the fact that yeah we are equally as affected if not more sometimes than people in full-time employment
1: that's exactly right and you know we can take advantage well I mean this is a gross generalization but things like tax breaks for inv- investing in equipment typically freelancers can't take advantage of that as much as bigger businesses so i think that's something that the government needs to take into consideration as well that you know we can't take advantage of those 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 initiatives so maybe there's something else like yeah
0: exactly so do you charge per word or per hour or per project and do you find that clients haggle for your services at a lower price particularly when it's been a tough time for them and i guess you know just getting your big girl pants on how do you say no to that
1: Well, that's one way that I can manage my workload. So my standard rate is a dollar a word plus GST, which is a really simple business model for me and my clients. I like to price and cost a job before I do it so the client knows exactly what it will cost them and there won't be any surprises. So by not discounting my rate, I do price myself out of the market for some jobs, but that is what helps me manage my workload and make sure that I don't keep working 24 hours a day
0: yeah absolutely and I guess do you find that you've changed your rates obviously over the 20 years or is it kind of hard to do that how do you how do you price increase I mean most people have a job they might get a performance based increase every year or you know every however long they've been with a company but what do you do when you're a freelancer and you're like I've had this client for 10 years I've been charging them a dollar a word cost of living's gone up I'm really busy and I'm even more experienced than I was 10 years ago. So is there room to do that? Or you think sometimes it's better just to have the client be happy and stay with you?
1: I think so. And, you know, there is natural attrition. I Most of my clients have been with me for ages, but they sort of come and go or they'll move jobs and that gives you the opportunity to increase your rate. When I started out, I think I, my standard rate was 70 cents a word. So it's improved over time. So, but yeah, it is very difficult to negotiate and I feel, I mean, maybe this is because I haven't put my big girl pants on, but I feel it's difficult to negotiate a a rate increase with an established client. But when new clients come along, you can make sure that they do pay your your. existing
0: rate. yeah absolutely look COVID has hit many businesses hard and we have alluded to the fact that sole traders and freelancers were left out of last year's kind of pandemic concessions and and financial support from the government during COVID did your business take a hit like a lot of others did and how did you actually find or maintain work and I guess in the year and a half we've been living like this has it kind of got better over time and what's some what are some tips that you'd have to, to make it work
1: so typically, crises are the making of my business for a number of reasons. One, I'm a finance journalist and it gives people want to know what's going on and it gives me an opportunity to write. Also, people tend to have higher freezes, so they use freelancers more and that's always worked in my favour during downturn. When COVID hit last year, I, had a, I did have a dip, but I came back really strongly. I went out and did a huge amount of new business probably too much. And so from about April, May onwards until the rest of the year, I was super busy and that's what I, I know, I, I'm still really, really busy now. So, Would you say it was as
0: busy as you were, say, in 2019 or just sort of kind of playing catch up in that sense? Like how would you compare busier, that
1: period? Far, far busier. 2019 was reasonably quiet. Oh, 2019, don't forget we were sort of coming off the back of the Royal Commission, which... Did cause a bit of a downturn in my business and it was starting to pick up through 2019. 2020 started well and then, you know, dipped and then went whooshka after the initial impact of the lockdowns.
0: Absolutely. If you weren't writing about business, what else would you write about? Surfing,
1: skiing (laughs) and cooking, maybe those three. I've always wanted to be, you know, a, a food journalist. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's still time not over yeah, yet it's
0: still time. exactly so I'm a big believer that that people haven't got to where they are without at least one or two mentors and they can be formal or informal mentors they can be personal or professional mentors but is there anyone that comes to mind that had an impact on your career your life and your journey so far
1: I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now without two people my dad because he ran his own publishing business and advertising business Company, so I saw firsthand how to run a business. I literally would sit on his lap and, and watch him work, and I could see what it how it taught me how to deal with clients, um, how to deal with finances, how to get new business, and just the joys of working for yourself. So he was a huge and very important influence. One of my first bosses, Anthony Tregonning, was also a huge and remains a huge influence in my life. He gave me opportunities to really show what I could do and that was a, an incredible part of my career
0: yeah well they're great people to think and reflect about one personal and one professional and as we wrap up today would you have any final thoughts or messages for anyone particularly if they're just starting out on in the freelance writing space about how to navigate the politics of freelancing some pearls of wisdom Allie
1: the one of the beauties of being a freelancer is you don't have to navigate the politics of internal organizations now that's not to say You don't have to, you know, there's always politics of working with clients. Clients are not always right. It's up to you to, you know, give them alternate views, challenge their views and try and be a a good resource. I guess, yeah, that's one of the most important things.
0: Well it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. we know each other professionally we are also good friends yeah. but I really valued your candidness and sharing what's made you be such a successful freelance writer because not everybody can make such a such a good deal out of it to make it a living to make it your livelihood. So thank you so much for your time Ali and to everybody else until next time keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through apple spotify and all the usual suspects i'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests so if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there please email me at amber at and my crew will get back to you very soon